0: What we're going to do this quarter, as you know, we're beginning the winter quarter with our class tonight. We'll have uh, about three classes, and then we'll miss a couple of weeks, one for Christmas and one for New Year's, and uh, then we'll start back in in January, uh, the second Wednesday night of January, and uh, from then on, I don't think we'll be supposedly missing any classes during that period of time. I want us to look at the church. Sometimes we, I think, especially in our modern society, have gotten where we look at the church totally different than what the New Testament says. And I want us just to go through the Bible, and I I hope you've got your Bible with you, Tonight, I hope, uh, if not, I hope you've got some paper where you can write down some passages and you can view them at a later time. We're going to be looking at a lot of them tonight and and most of them will be on the screen, although there are probably about as many that are we're going to mention and talk about that will not be there. But I want you to realize some things. The Old Testament mentioned the coming church in a lot of different ways a lot of the prophecy spoke about the coming church Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 2 talked about the mountain of the Lord's house would be established in the top of the mountains and exalted above the hills and all nations would flow into it what's he talking about he's talking about the church and he referred to it as the Lord's house Uh, Daniel, and throughout, if you read the book of Daniel, you're going to find Daniel, in his prophecy, spoke of the church as the kingdom, making sure that we understood that it was the kingdom, that it was the reign of Christ. And on and on we could go with those kinds of things, but I want you to understand as we recognize the fact that the church will picture for us the very status of, Of Christ the very status of God derives its nature from it and its origin from Jesus Christ and we all know that the nature of the church is based on that Old Testament prophecy the Messiah was to come he was Christ and he was going to come at that time please remember something the Old Testament God's people in the Old Testament we're the literal nation of Israel. We understand that. God's people in the New Testament, and we'll talk about this just a little bit later on, are the ones who have become Christians, the ones who have been baptized into Christ, who have put on Christ. And they're, they're God's people in the spiritual sense, not physically, but in the spiritual sense. We sometimes forget that and get things confused with it. The, sa- the Old Testament uses the same words that the uh, uh, the New Testament used, the same words the Old Testament used. And we can understand that. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Paul in Galatians 6 and verse 16 said, As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Who's the Israel of God? It's the church. It's those who have obeyed the gospel. It's those who are walking in Christ's shadow, following Him and what they're doing. Now in the Israel of God in the Old Testament, that was the the nation of Israel. That was the physical people of that nation. Now we're talking about the spiritual people. The language in, in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for the earth is mine. All the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Can you remember, I'm sure you can, reading the Old Testament, the first five books where you're talking about the kingdom, Moses' work in building the tabernacle, and ultimately later on when David uh, wanted to build the temple, and Solomon finally did, his son, after David's death, and we had a special place, a special place that was so special that was where God met. And it was the temple, inside that temple was a special room in which the Ark of the Covenant, in which the, the very simple thing where the priest could enter that room once a year, one day out of the year, and offer atonement for the sins of mankind, sins of the people, Jewish people, those who have obeyed that Old Testament covenant, that Old Testament law. And today, I want you to notice something else. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, but you, talking about Christians, talking about you and I, he's writing to the people of his time, but we can make our put ourselves in that place, but you are a chosen generation. God chose you. How did he do it? Well, first of all, God is all knowing remember that he knew when he created this world when he spoke this world into existence he knew that man was going to be going to receive the power of choice and he knew that somewhere along the line we would make the wrong choice now i don't know how long it took adam and eve in the garden of eden before eve led uh, adam into making the wrong choice and sinning. But after that, that was done, then there was a special way for them to worship and serve God. In the New Testament now, he says, I've chosen you. Out of all those on the earth, he's chosen you. Not only that, he says, you're a, not only a chosen generation, you're a royal priesthood. You remember the Old Testament, how many priests there were? Only of one tribe. Only of one tribe. And they had to be chosen specially. They could not enter into that temple area until they had washed themselves and and changed their clothes and and put on special garments and, and gone in there exactly as they had been ordered to do. But you're a royal priesthood. We're not of the tribe of Levi, but he's made us royal priests. Not only that, but you're a holy nation. Sanctified, set apart. Somebody that's holy. Somebody that's dedicated to serving God. That's what we're talking about. You're not only that, you're his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's in reference to the true fulfillment of the Old Testament teaching is found in spiritual Israel. In the Old Testament, when we see the prophecies of the coming Messiah, we're not talking about how He's going to make a kingdom, physical kingdom, as people today will tell you that He's going to return to this earth and set up His kingdom and reign for a thousand years. No, 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 no. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom. You see, Paul said in Romans 9 and verse 6, but it is not the Word of God that has taken no effect. It is not that. that, that, That's not what's happened. Paul said, for they're not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. In other words, there was a specific group there that was going to be called. But now the specific group is those who have obeyed the gospel. Paul says in Philippians 3 and verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. One of the qualifications in the Old Testament for a Jew to be uh, according to God's worship was circumcision. It's not anymore, it's circumcision of the heart. It's not physical, it's not in the flesh. In Romans chapter 2, verse 27 and 28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly what a drastic change has taken place. When we come to see how we're worshiping God, it must be with that inward nature. We're we're that righteous remnant that Isaiah prophesied of, that Paul quoted when Paul spoke of that new covenant. He spoke of the time, according to 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 6 following, that we're going to have a new covenant. The book of Hebrews talks a lot about that covenant. The old law has been nailed to the cross. It's been taken out of the way. It's been fulfilled. There is no more old law. It is now a new covenant with God. The Bible is filled with that kind of idea. We're among that righteous remnant. We're among those that have been prophesied as Paul spoke of it. Now I want you to see this name Christian. We know that the church comes in fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation of the last days. When we look at the prophecies of those last times, we know that's the church. We know that the Messiah, or Christ, is not separate from His people. He came for a close relationship with those that serve Him, between Himself and His people. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31 following talks about that. He claims what is done for his brethren is done for him and vice versa. What's done for him is done for his brethren. Now think about that. Let that soak in just for a few moments. If we're going to serve Jesus Christ, it's going to be as we associate together. Now, we've not really thought about it that way many times. Truth is very vividly, vividly seeing those messianic, messianic titles, names of His people. There are many terms related to that which are also used for His people. For example, Christians wear the name of Christ. The term Christian means of or belonging to Christ. It's formed from the word Christ with the Latin suffix, I-A-N-X, added to it. And that means that it is someone who belongs to Christ. During the Roman Empire, during that time, they frequently borrowed from the Greek. And maybe I can illustrate it one way by the name Caesar. And if you took that name Caesar and add the I-A-N-X to the end of that word, you're describing for them someone who belonged to Caesar. Someone who was an imperial slave. Someone that, that he had purchased perhaps, or that had grown up in his care. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. But the the, the ending is something that indicates that person whose name the ending was added to was served by the one who wears the name. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 12. I am of Christ. Or again, in Galatians, Uh, chapter 5 and verse 24, those who are Christ, afterward, uh, those who are Christ, who are Christ, have crucified the flesh with the passions and desires. Jesus is the anointed one. Do you remember reading, I know you do, from Matthew chapter 3, when we find that Jesus was baptized of John and After he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove and landed upon him. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Not with oil. Not like Saul had to do as he anointed kings during his day with pouring some oil over their head. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about that for a few moments. We need to understand that we, in our own order, Christ the firstfruits and then others following Him is the way it goes to. Christians are the servants of the Messiah. Of the Messiah. No question. Theirs is a royal title. Remember me saying many of Caesar's servants were also individuals who served with an important administrative post in his empire. Those who serve in Christ as Christ's servants serve also with a royal title. The name Christian it was first used in Antioch. Remember that Acts chapter eleven verse twenty six. Christians were called, they were called Christians first in Antioch, the disciples were. It's interesting to me, and probably significant, that Antioch is the place where that word was first used. It's interesting because that was the place where we see a, a, a gathering of Christians, Jewish Christians, and Gentile Christians blended together. In other words, there's no division there anymore. That's what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And the word called is rather interesting. They were called Christians first in Antioch. And many times that was exactly what was used of divine revelation. It may, it may suggest a divine calling on the name of the Lord's people at that time. Jesus is the anointed one, as I said a moment ago, anointing of the Holy Spirit, uh, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. Thus equipped, he carried out that messianic message, and he carried out the purpose, that mission, only with his resurrection, which he performed. The word of the Messiah was fulfilled. God then made him both Lord and Christ. Made him both Lord and Christ. You think about that. Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. The the, the summation of Peter's sermon, and I'm assuming that the other 11 apostles preaching the same thing at the same time were preaching much the same idea. But the the summation of that is that God made Him both Lord and Christ. And here they were that had crucified Him. He was declared with them to be the Son of God with power, according to Romans 1 and verse 4. And even so, Christians who wear Christ's name today have an anointing of the Holy One just like Jesus was in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 20 but you have the anointing of the Holy One now and verse 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 21 and 22 now he who established us with you in Christ has anointed us is God God has anointed us he's seated us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee you remember the uh, the answer Peter gave on, when the, on the day of Pentecost, when the men there asked men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized. and You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the remission of sins. We know that. But you'll at the same time receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're, you'll be anointed at that time. Ruling as a holy one. Early Christian writers did not hesitate to speak of Christians as little Christs. But there are other titles of the church that are important. Jesus the Messiah is king. And, and a lot of passages, you see a number of them listed on the screen that you, where you could find him listed in that, that particular way. His people, therefore, are the kingdom. If he's the king, the people who are following him are his kingdom. Colossians 1 and verse 13, the basic idea of the kingdom is not a a realm, it's not a geographical area like some are supposing that he's going to do when he returns to this earth. It's a reign, it's a rule. Spiritual, yes, but he's reigning and ruling as a king right now over the church. The kingdom of God's proclaimed by Jesus in the gospel refers to a kingdom rule, a kingly rule. Thus, the gospel refers to that royal authority of God. The kingly power of God exercised through Christ creates a people called the church. Thus, those who are in Christ share in his kingdom. And in his messianic functions, First Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2, says that the saints, who are the saints? Anybody remember? Christians, right? You and I. The saints shall judge the world. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, Timi- or 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12. Interesting to think about, isn't it? There's some some titles of Jesus that we need to notice too. Jesus is the elect one or the chosen one according to Luke chapter 23 and verse 35 and 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. Christians are the elect ones too, remember? He tells us that you've been elected. You're you're one of the elect, elect ones or the chosen ones. As we said a moment ago, you've been chosen. Not only that, Jesus is the Holy One. Now think about that for a moment. The Holy One of God. Mark 1, 24, John 6, 20. Also Acts 3 and verse 14. And Christians are described as the Holy Ones, or saints. Romans chapter 16 and verse 15, 2 Corinthians 1 and 1. Ephesians 5 and verse 3, Jesus is God's beloved. And at the same time, so are we. We can see that as very simple as it's already been told. Christians are God's beloved ones. Romans chapter 1 and verse 7, Ephesians 5 and verse 1. This relationship between Christ and Christians may be illustrated by further by son and sons Jesus is the son of God John, John chapter 1 and verse 18 Christians are also the sons of God according to Luke chapter 6 verse 35 and Romans chapter 8 verse 14 he is the firstborn one now we know That When we read the word firstborn, that doesn't mean that no one was born before him. It means he's preeminent overall. If you could picture family structure back in that particular time when all of this was writing, the eldest child, the eldest son received the greatest inheritance. Remember? He's the one who who would rule. He's the firstborn. He has the greatest power. Jesus is the firstborn in the sense that he has the greatest power ruling over us at this present time. And the church is made up of firstborn ones who are enrolled in heaven, according to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 23. Firstborn ones enrolled in heaven. You see Galatians three and verse twenty six makes it clear how men become sons baptism into Christ means that we've put on Christ we it's like putting on clothes we, we are completely wrapped up in Christ we're enclosed in Jesus Christ we are no longer living according to the works of the flesh. We're living according to Christ. You see, we're we're into Christ. We're clothed in Christ. We've put on Christ. If one's in Christ, he belongs to Christ. He is Christ. So that the nature of Christ becomes his nature and since Christ, Christ is the son, the Christian shares that sonship with him. Same principle may be applied to other terms. A concordance will reveal a lot of passages. We're throwing a lot of them at you tonight. But the the concordance will give you a lot of other passages beyond those that we've seen here. But they're great examples. They're consistent usage. The same word is used in the original language for both Christ and Christians. A fact sometimes obscured by translations. You see, with but very few exceptions, the word for Christ, that's used exclusively for Christ, is singular. The word that's used for Christians is always plural. Sometimes we don't see that in the translations that we use, but Jesus is a singular, unique individual. He, is, he possesses the quality of relation to God. And a Christian as an individual does not possess this quality in relation to God. Yet the fact that the same word is used to them shows the association of the disciples with their master. What he said of him is true of His people, their sons, their beloved saints, their chosen ones. But let's be honest about it. Those things are not true of us by our nature, our own nature. We've sinned. We've come short of the glory of God. We've failed in so many ways, but when we are enclosed in Jesus, we're holy. We're sanctified, set apart. You see, they're sons. that's, That's true. We're beloved sons only because of Christ. The church derives its nature from Jesus, from Christ. But the church is not Christ. If the church tries to be its own authority, then it'll forget this relationship. Problems will occur. The results of this study have importance for the nature of the church. It's what its Lord really is. It is what it is, because He is what He is. The nature of the church is derivative, coming from Jesus. The church is what it is only because of what Christ is. Now, Christians are individuals. We, we, we're aware of that. We can see that round about us. Each one of us had have our own specific, unique individuality. No question about that. So the New Testament Christians are referred to as saints. Not because of what we've done, not because we earned it, not because of, of the greatness or, or the goodness of our of our lives but only because he's part of the church. The gathered people of God. All qualities shared with Christ are only in him. One is a saint or any of these other titles, not because of anything he's done, but because he derives a quality from Christ in Christ alone. Of course, the task of the Christian life is to become fully what God wants us to be. Of course, we ask to take the, the task of Christian life and become fully the gift of Christ. What we can be by His gift. The nature of Christians is the nature of Christ, but it's not possessed independently. It's only by incorporation in Him. The Hebrew, the Hebrew writer tells us, "He who is who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren." The passage which perhaps brings out the best thought is another passage that you are familiar with, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Well, Jesus said, "I am the vine, and you are the branches." In a spiritual paradox, he's, he, he's describing what this is. He is like a vine with branches growing out from it, being taking their, their essence from the very vine itself. And yet he says, in essence, if you allow me to paraphrase here, he's saying the vine is the whole church. And His people are the branches of the vine. They receive their life from Him. They bear fruit from Him. Apart from Him, they are not of the vine. They have life. They are what they are, only in union with Christ. Christ brings into existence extensions of Himself. And where Christ is, there is the church. Christ, in an act of grace, extends His qualities to His people. So they receive as a gift His status, status, status before God church derives its nature as well as its origin from God, from Christ. Very quickly as we go through some things, I want you to see some images of the church. I want you to see it first of all from the word church. Ecclesia is the word that's translated church in the New Testament. Greek word ekklesia. Ecclesia was a simply describing an assembly of people. Picture if you're in your mind, if you will, for just a moment, the time of the New Testament times. How did did the rulers of kingdoms inform the people of their edicts and their laws? Well, they did it by sending out what later years in the in the teen years back was called the town crier. Some of them would come into the town, and he would assemble as many people as he could and read the edict or the law to them so they knew what the emperor had done. That assembly was what was called ecclesia. It has nothing to do with religion. It was just an assembly of, per- of people. That word was that way. Now, as we think about it, In actual usage, the word did not have a connotation of the called out. The separation of the church from the world is a correct theological idea taught in the New Testament, but it's not the feature of the church. You see, that's the basic meaning of the New Testament was simply that assembly. And in this meaning, the word appears in Christian literature for actual assemblies of believers in Christ. There's several collection, uh, actual things that we can see there it's reference to the local church we understand that whether it was a symbol or not Acts chapter 11, 22 and 26 Galatians chapter 1 and 22, Colossians 4 and verse 16 the word had thus early become a technical term in Christian usage for the people of God in a given locality Where it was used, it was used for the assembly of God's people. Sometimes it's in a home. Sometimes it's other places. You see, a Greek word was used, but its content was new and supplied by the Jewish background where the assembly was the people of God, but it's doubtful that the word had ever acquired the connotation of the people of God. Specifically, here's an assembly, the people of God. You see, in the New Testament, corporate nature is present by the virtue of believers' relationships and their relationship with Christ. In latter books of the New Testament, one finds the term church to be applied to the universal church, Ephesians 1.22, Colossians 1.24. And even though some have suggested that the actual assembly must wait till Christ comes, I think, it's, I think we assemble the church when we come together. Please remember the church itself could refer to any assembly. Frequently there's a descriptive qualifying phrase added, identifying but not properly naming the church as belonging to God or Christ. Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Sometimes the references to Christians who compose the church. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 1. Hebrews 12 and verse 23. Earlier, we've looked at some of the terms applied to individual members of the church. Fellowship. Established of Christ is described in the New Testament in various ways. The people, the Lord's people, the people that make up the church are the family of God. The sheep, the sheepfold, John chapter 10 and verse 10. The vineyard, Matthew chapter 20 and 21. Three images right here selected for special examination. And look at the word body. Very quickly as we sum up here, one of Paul's favorite expressions, one of his favorite descriptions, of the church, was the body of Christ. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3 and 4, so we being many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 through 26, the emphasis is on the individual members of the body, each contributing its part to the functioning of the whole. Every one of us have our own unique abilities, have our own unique talents. Some things I can't do. I've tried to lead singing a time or two. I'll never forget one time when, when, back when I was uh, preaching in Oklahoma, I believe it was. It may have been, I think it's Oklahoma. Took one one young man, young teenager with me on one Friday night, because one Friday night of the month I'd go back to the old country building where I began preaching, and I'd preach for them one Friday night a month. We got there, and there was nobody there to lead singing. I had to. I, just a very few years ago, he was serving, that the, yeah, the young man that went with me is, was serving as an elder in Springdale, Arkansas. And I was visiting family there, and when I met him, we discussed many things. He said, one thing I'll never forget, you can't lead singing. <laughs> yeah, we all have talents, don't we? We all have things that we are not really suited to do. And that's what Paul's talking about. We, whatever our talents are, use them for the cause of Christ, for the body of Christ. It may be argued that the, the body of Christ is more than a figure of speech. It can describe a relationship. Its basic uh, character that it describes uh, and the nature it describes is of individuals who are in Christ, who have been baptized, according to 1 Corinthians twelve twelve, and Romans twelve four. The background of Paul's usage is probably to be found in the Hebrew idea of corporate assembly. All of them coming together in which people may be viewed, viewed as one in which one person may stand for and embody the whole. We do that too, do we not? We know one person from a family. If we don't consider all the rest of them, one person can stand for that family. And same thing for the church. When you go out from here, you may say, "Well, I, be- I belong to the church that meets in Buford," and so they have the picture of the people. Maybe not all of them they know, but they have the they they have the idea that they're not talking just about you. They're talking about they're thinking about the the entire church, the old test in its old testament concept, the cor- of uh, corporate personality. The head stands for the whole. Christ is the head. That stands for the whole. Christ is the principle of authority for the church because he's its creative source. And the church has its beginning and origin in him. Certain practical points are emphasized in the passages about the church as a body. Since Christ is the head of all things, there are different functions, diversity, unity in the church being united to the head the body has no schism no discord but rather sympathetic interest the importance of the church becomes obvious from this description one cannot be subject to the head and united to Christ without being in his body this body's the place of peace Reconciliation, salvation, the body of Christ concept has important implications. The idea of the body appears important teaching regarding baptism, regarding to the Lord's Supper and to His superiority. It's also closely connected with another description, one that we all know from Ephesians chapter 4, or chapter 5. And the latter part of that chapter, I like to think it begins in verse 21. If your Bible has things set aside as paragraphs, the paragraph begins with verse 22. Verse 21 is that we all are are to be in subjection to one another. And then in verse 22, the wife is to be in subjection to her own husband. And the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. In other words, we all become one. The intimacy of that relationship of Christ and the church finds its, it, it, its one of its closest parallels to that of the intimacy of a marital union by which two become one flesh, according to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29. The love and authority of Christ, the submission and response of the church, are exemplified in that relationship. The headship is not an arbitrary authority. It's an authority based on love. Only the greatest love can command the greatest obedience. But where the love is, the greatest, submission will be rendered freely. And then there's another word that I just want to mention just briefly. That's the building word building. There's so many things. Paul speaks of us building up the body. We see that so many different ways. The ways in which Revelation 21 verse 9 speaks of the bride. I think this is very descriptive of the church. John was told by the angel that was directing him at that time, come with me and I'll show you the bride of the Lamb. And he took him aside and showed him the city, the great holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven. What's he talking about? He's talking about the bride. That's what he took John to see. John was, that because he saw the holy city descending out of heaven and described with such beautiful language, that we would even think that's heaven, so we can, we can anticipate that. I think it's talking about the church. The beauty of people who are called together, people who are, that, are, that compose the very temple. You know, your body is a temple of God. We compose that temple ourselves. In the Old Testament, God chose a place where His name was to be recorded and where His presence was to dwell. That was where the mercy seat was and where they had to come in in special ways. And not only that, the church of Christ is now the temple where God meets those who worship Him. Not the building. We're not talking about a a real building. We're talking about a spiritual house. The word church never refers to an actual building in the New Testament. Jesus Christ, to whom other stones are joined, gives unity to the structure and is the chief cornerstone. That God dwells there makes the church holy. Now, won't you think about that for just a few moments? Because one's personal. Relationship with Christ can never deny corporate solidarity in its body. Bow with me for a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to you for your blessing today. We're so thankful that Jesus has come and has made it possible for us to become part of him to be in him, to be clothed with him, to be serving him as his own special servant. Help us to do so wisely. And according to your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.